Early in the summer of 2020, my housemate left our home in St. Paul, Minnesota at 5 a.m. to attend a protest outside of the Minnesota governor's mansion. She was wearing her notorious red hoodie with the words, we are here to protect the water, stop line three. By this time, I'd lived with her for almost two years. And ever since I met her, about 80% of the words that came out of her mouth had something to do with a thing called line three. And about 80% of the time, I shrugged the information aside. Yeah, I know, not the best way to build a friendship. And this nonchalance towards line three went on for another two years. That was until the end of summer 2020, in the midst of a global pandemic, on the brink of global economic collapse, and with heightened racial tensions after the unjust murder of George Floyd. I came to understand how Line 3 embodied so many of the injustices present throughout history, but more so, how stopping Line 3 provides a path towards realizing a future that affirms life over profit. For those of you that haven't heard about it, Line 3 is a tar sands oil pipeline built, owned, and operated by a Canadian energy transportation company called Enbridge. Enbridge is one of North America's largest infrastructure companies. Between 2016 and 2019, Enbridge's annual revenue went from about $35 billion to $50 billion. And according to them, Enbridge transports about 25% of the crude oil produced in North America and about 20% of the natural gas consumed in the U.S., through their intricate pipeline network. Oil pipelines are basically these massive pipes installed beneath the ground to transport oil or natural gas across long distances. Line 3 in particular was constructed in the 1960s and runs from Alberta, Canada, through North Dakota and Minnesota to Superior, Wisconsin. Since 2015, Enbridge has been trying to replace the old pipeline with a new one for what they deem to be environmental safety reasons. See, the current Line 3 was built in the 1960s, and frankly, it's a disaster in action and waiting to happen. The pipe has experienced multiple spills in the past and has degraded so much that Enbridge reduced its carrying capacity to about 50%. So the solution seems pretty straightforward, right? Take out the old pipeline, replace it with the new one, problem solved. Well, it's not that simple. Taking a pipeline out of the ground is incredibly risky, and during the replacement, it actually increases the likelihood of a spill. To get around some of these complications, Enbridge proposed a completely new route for the pipeline, leaving most of the old Line 3 abandoned in its current place. As part of this alternate route, Enbridge also took the liberty to increase the pipeline's diameter, which will double the amount of oil transported. So it's less of a replacement and more of an expansion project. And this is just the beginning. The new pipeline will traverse 200 water bodies in northern Minnesota and cross the Mississippi River twice. Most egregiously, the pipeline runs through ceded treaty land of the Anishinaabe, who are a body of Native American peoples who retain land use, hunting, and fishing rights under a series of treaties signed during the 1800s. The construction of the pipeline comes into direct violation of the treaties and disrupts the Anishinaabe people's ability to benefit from their natural resources. 
Pipeline construction also bears a lasting legacy of increased local drug use and trafficking, and more horrifically, the disappearance of indigenous women and two-spirit people. Lastly, and a bit more obviously, the Line 3 replacement project will have devastating climate impacts. The Minnesota Department of Commerce calculated that the carbon emissions from Line 3 will equal that of 50 coal plants. Building the new Line 3 would add more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere than the entire state of Minnesota produced in 2016. And for context, Minnesota's population at the time was 5.5 million. These are all reasons why people were inspired to protest outside of the gates of Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz's mansion. Because he has the political authority to put an end to the unnecessary social and environmental degradation generated by Line 3. And with the recent federal blocking of the Keystone XL oil pipeline, pressures have shifted to President Biden to do the same for Line 3. The fight against Line 3 has moved from protests in the streets to legal battles in the courts, and now, with construction underway, to the pipeline's front lines. In the two months since December 2020, over 120 people have been arrested in actions trying to stop Line 3. After saying all that, I feel pretty embarrassed reiterating that initially I was pretty indifferent towards the whole pipeline. Don't get me wrong, I always agreed with my housemate that the pipeline sounded like a horrible fate for both the environment and human health. But frankly, I felt like it didn't really concern me. I'm an international student from Zimbabwe who's always felt slightly disconnected from certain political movements in the US. To make things more complicated, I'm also a geology major, and I've been on the fence about going into the fossil fuel industry. Line 3 didn't seem like it was the fight for me. And as I said before, that apathy held until this past summer. I was part of a rotational internship at the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, known as the MPCA. I was really into the idea of working at a regulatory body that I believed had the power to reduce industrial pollution. I mean, pollution control is literally in the name of the organization. So I continued my internship at the MPCA into the next semester and was honestly falling in love with the place. Over the summer, I attended their Sterling Environmental Justice Advisory Group meeting and heard about the various efforts to embed environmental justice into all aspects of the MPCA's framework. So, on November 12th, 2020, I was dumbfounded when the MPCA granted Enbridge its 401c water quality permit one of the final approvals Line 3 needed to begin construction. At the time, it didn't make any sense. And honestly, some of it still doesn't. How is it that an organization whose literal mission is to protect and improve the health of humans and the environment permitted something that threatens the existence of both its priorities? And if the organization was actually serious about environmental justice, then this was the perfect opportunity to prove its commitment to respecting and safeguarding the lives of indigenous peoples and those most affected by the pipeline's construction. I had to find answers. But as I dug, I found out how deeply rooted the issue is in settler colonialism, capitalism, and skillfully orchestrated confusion. In this podcast, we'll explore the simple question, why did the Minnesota state government approve Enbridge's Line 3 replacement project? despite the social and environmental cost associated with its construction. With input from various guests, we'll discuss the history of Enbridge and the MPCA, how permitting actually works in the US, and the significance of Line 3 in Minnesota and abroad.
We're also going to touch on how communities are organizing to fight back against this extractive giant. My name is Lee Kwendlovu, and this is Permission to Pollute. From environmental destruction to settler colonialism, Line 3 represents a tangible intersection of so many injustices that currently plague the world. So I'd like us to take a step back. When I started learning about Line 3, there was a lot of groundwork I needed to cover, and I still feel like I have a ways to go. So I'd like to use the remainder of the episode to highlight a couple of themes that portray how universal the fight against Line 3 actually is. I'm going to say this again and again and again. I encourage you to do your own research. If something sounds confusing or you'd like to learn more, simply just hop on your computer or whatever access you have and Google it. Some great resources for information are Honor the Earth, Lion3.org, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in Two-Spirit, and the GNU Collective on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, the first theme you might be a little bit familiar with, sustainability. I've had a uh, poster hanging over my desk that has followed me throughout my various college households um, that I picked up from a conference that I went to my freshman year. Um, the, and the conference was called and the poster says, sustainability is dead. And then it has architecture as a regenerator. And I have that above my desk always. And it like really confuses a lot of people. Like I think I defended my honors thesis with that in the background and everyone is like, but you love sustainability. Like that's your whole thing. Like, why are you like, <laughs> why does it say sustainability is dead? That's Dio Kramer. She's an artistic activist and the author of From Soap to Cities, Biomimicry as a Tool for Mindful Design in the Anthropocene. The way that we talk about like what is like quote unquote sustainable in this world is just so so far from like what we need to be actually doing that's going to have an impact um and yeah essentially like it's just it's not enough what Dio's getting at is the underlying problem with sustainability the general idea is if we do these things recycle don't litter shorter showers less of this less of that then we can solve climate change but a lot of people are realizing that it's not going to be that simple and sustainability might not be the solution we're looking for. As Dio points out in her book, the word sustainable means able to be maintained. It implies constant existence, unwavering systems. However, if we work to maintain the systems we have today, we're still gonna be spiraling into a late stage capitalist hellscape that commodifies every aspect of the natural world. And she says that that's an optimistic scenario. Capitalism is not going to solve sustainability and I just don't, I can't imagine any capitalist future that's like green enough to like solve the problems we're facing on a global scale. So if sustainability isn't the solution, then what is? Dio thinks that mindful design and regeneration are some of the things that we should be looking more seriously into. Um, I definitely like think a lot of this probably comes down to like, difference in in definitions of words which I try not to get too much like too caught up with and I sort of just try to like follow my gut on like what feels like a good example and like what feels like the right path and, and what feels wrong um, because all of these words can just become so like 
overused and, and sort of meaningless, um, the more that they are applied to things that they are not. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely like, cause you can definitely have some projects that people are calling sustainable ones that like are like really good and actually regenerative and they're just not comfortable using that term, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, the difference in my head for sustainability and like regenerative design is that like one of them uh, sort of minimizes like bad things, which would be sustainable. So you try to use less of a certain product and, and you make less emissions and then regenerative design is about maximizing the good and like maximizing regrowth. And so there's a lot more opportunity there for, I guess, like creativity and, and newness. So sustainability is sort of seen a lot of the time as like, oh, we have to limit everything less, uh, be less bad. Whereas regenerative is uh, creating better systems for the future and inviting new. Um, and again, some of that is like a little bit of wordplay, but uh, mm. I think like, if you, if you look at it, like examples in nature, like a forest, it's not really sustainable by our definition of sustainable because it doesn't just like maintain steady momentum. It's always like growing and evolving and changing and adapting. And like, that's the regenerative part. And that's, I think what we need to embody more. As the concept of sustainability has grown, we've gotten bogged down with drawing up metrics and checkboxes for what is sustainable and what isn't. But within complicating sustainability, we seem to have lost light of what is actually important. I have a tangential story about um, sort of that, like the problem with having too many names for things is I was uh, getting a tattoo from um, this like sustainable architect and he'd like studied architecture, um, was really well versed in sustainable design and he built his own house in the desert and he did it like in the most like sustainable way he possibly could like using as much natural light for heating and cooling and all of these passive techniques. And he tried to get it um, LEED certified, which and LEED is the like the naming standard for, for buildings that are like, again, quote unquote, sustainable. Um, and it's just a checklist of things that like, does your building do this? Does it have this? And they came to his house and they were like, okay, well, where's your like super efficient drying machine? And he's like, well, we just hang our clothes outside because it's in the desert and there's a lot of sun and they're like, well, we can't give you points for this then. And so he didn't pass the certification because it was like, he didn't have enough of the unsustainable things that made it sustainable by this, like our mainstream definition of like what makes a building sustainable. And like, that just blew my mind. I was like, it just doesn't make any sense. When we start developing limiting definitions of sustainability, we restrict the creative potential of the challenges we have before us. Dio tries to get around this problem by creating a manifesto for what she calls mindful design. Mindful design is a philosophy that incorporates slowness, connectedness, health, adaptation, humility, and cultural context as pillars we need to embody to adapt to the paradox of the Anthropocene. Two things there. One, the Anthropocene is the geologic time frame we're currently living in, where humans are the main agents that shape the earth. And two, with regard to the paradox, in the words of geographer Bruce Braun, the Anthropocene presents a paradox of the human ego. We claim that we're forming a new era of geological time with our actions, even as we stare into the future of our own demise. And that is the peril of line three. I don't know. It really kills me. Like, it's just everyone knows that this is going to be 
ecologically like a really, really bad idea because all pipelines spill and you and I know that and the Minnesota governor knows that and the pipeline executives know that and they've just chosen, they're just choosing to not care about that and still like prioritize these like modern ideas of progress and like what we should be doing and like growth in a very specific way. Um, but we know better because this has happened before. Like we've had oil spills before and still we can't get creative enough to realize that there are other ways of like powering societies. There are like new technologies available. There are old technologies available. Like we really are just like, it's a lack of creativity that we're like sticking so hard to these things that we know in the long term are, are going to be bad. Like I really truly believe that the people who are pushing this pipeline through like deep down know this because again, there's tons of examples of this and they're just choosing, maybe it's not, not to care, but they're just prioritizing like money and like progress over all of that. The pathway forward has to be embedded in collective action. As Dio states in her book, while acknowledging that not all humans are equally responsible for perpetuating the fossil fuel economies, nuclear warfare, toxic extraction and industrialization, all of us will feel the consequences of these systems, particularly the communities least responsible. And that's where our second theme comes in, environmental justice. We're gonna to touch a lot more on environmental justice, known as EJ, but for now, I'm gonna zoom into the MPCA's EJ framework. And as you can imagine, it's often a lot of bark and not that much bite. For example, the MPCA's EJ framework is as follows. And as you listen, think about what was just said about line three earlier. Okay. The Minnesota Pollution Control Agency states that it will, within its authority, strive for the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of all environmental laws, regulations, and policies. They define fair treatment as no group of people should bear a disproportionate share of the negative environmental consequences resulting from industrial, governmental, and commercial operations or policies. And they define meaningful engagement as people have an opportunity to participate in discussions about activities that may affect their environment and or health. The public's contribution can influence the regulatory agency's decision and the decision makers seek out and facilitate the involvement of those potentially affected. That framework, published on the MPCA's page, doesn't seem to correspond with the approval of an oil pipeline that is disproportionately going to affect Anishinaabe people in northern Minnesota. Commitments like this are still necessary. They're needed to call out organizations on the inconsistent administration of their own beliefs. This is why it gives us the lens to ask important questions like, why is there this inconsistency? What is the organization's structure and who actually gets to make and change the decisions? And this line of questioning leads us to our third concept, regulatory capture. Um, well, regulatory capture is, a, uh, I, I think, kind of a, a, a broad term that's used to um, describe a number of different kinds of uh, situations. I, I think in this case, uh, it, it really refers to a situation where a regulatory agency, you know, like the MPCA, is effectively putting the interests of a private company ahead of the public good. 
Meet Jim Doyle. He's a physics professor at McAllister College who teaches courses on renewable energy, digital electronics, and biophysics. But when he's not lecturing in front of a class, Jim is a pretty dope climate activist. Professor Doyle volunteers for Minnesota 350, a climate activism group in Minnesota, and uses his extensive academic background in physics to review some of Enbridge and the MPCA's oil spill modeling. But here, he isn't speaking for any group. He's just talking as Jim. And I wouldn't necessarily put it in terms that literally the agency works for the corporation, although I, <laughs> I know some people that might put it in those terms. Um, for me, it's, it's really a, a, a problem uh, with the bigger picture of environmental review. And uh, in this work that I've been doing uh, on, on line three, it's really become apparent to me that, um, that there's a problem. Jim's underplaying the situation. There's a big problem. Regulatory companies were created in response to pollution. However, their creation was intended to find ways to make industrial processes more environmentally friendly. In this way, regulatory companies, like environmental consulting firms or governmental bodies, get a large portion of their money from permitting and overseeing the operation of pollutants. As someone that's interested in going into environmental consulting, this truly shifted the way that I understood environmental regulation. For example, suppose a corporation has billions of dollars. They can easily spend the money to continue chipping away at the permitting process, persistently reapplying, paying people to lobby for them, providing money to the state government through taxes. And after a while, like in the case of Enbridge, they can usually get their project approved, legally. Um, and so then it becomes responsible to activists to push back on the project who have very limited political uh, power and, and resources, at least compared you know, to the companies involved in these kinds of things. Um, you know, Enbridge, by the way, is the biggest lobbyist in Minnesota by a factor of five. Uh, they spend $11 million a year on, on, on lobbying. Um, so that's you know, kind, of, kind of the more the big picture of what I see is that the system is sort of kind of slanted towards uh, helping corporations uh, deal with these environmental laws instead of taking the stance that um, you know, the environment is the most is, is more important here than the profits of a, in this case, a company that's not even an American company, it's a Canadian company, multinational company. Um, and, and so that, that seems to me to be kind of the bigger sort of question of regulatory uh, capture. I, I don't know if that term would apply to that kind of more broader sentiment, but the general idea is the same. So as we go through the curious case of line three, you might develop an eerie sense that laws are working in favor of large corporations like Enbridge. And that's because, for the most part, they are. Ultimately, government agencies become complicit in the destruction of the natural environment, the endangerment of people living in northern Minnesota, and the disregard for tribal treaty rights and indigenous sovereignty. But that doesn't mean there is no hope. Not at all. As we discuss later in the podcast, and is currently happening, there are numerous ways that justice can be demanded and implemented by the general public. The fourth concept is energy transitions. Energy transitions looks at how the dominant form of energy has changed over time. During the pre-industrial era, the main form of energy was biofuel, firewood, animal waste, all of that stuff. However, as mass industrialization entered the picture, 
a new form of energy came to the center stage, coal. Weighed out mass to mass, coal produced more energy than biofuels, so it became the energy source of choice. And then, with the advent of motor vehicles in the 20th century, oil became the dominant fuel. And now, oil is almost in everything. And I mean everything. From plastic bags, aluminum cans, your phones, the clothes you wear, oil is somehow involved. We're currently going through a predicted third energy transition, as natural gas is expected to overtake oil consumption, mainly due to its use in electricity generation. So you might be wondering, what about solar and wind energy? Well, they are on their way up, but unfortunately they're still pretty far behind. According to the International Energy Association, fossil fuels made up more than 80% of global energy consumption, while low-carbon fuels, including solar and wind, make up less than 20%. The British Petroleum Statistical Review of World Energy estimated that in 2019, renewable energy and hydroelectrical energy accounted for about 11% of the global primary energy sources. As I said, the use of solar and wind is increasing more rapidly than other forms of energy in the past, and global investments in their technology is improving. The global consciousness on climate change encourages the reduction of fossil fuel consumption, from momentous international agreements like the Paris Accord in 2016 to large syndicates like the Rockefellers divesting from fossil fuels. Even if it might be symbolic, this collective climate concern is affecting global markets. In April 2020, the first peak of the coronavirus in the US, the price of a barrel of oil dropped to 19.14 US dollars a barrel, the second lowest in history. Definitely the government restrictions during the pandemic had a lot to do with this decrease, but it's still a pretty big deal given that in the past 30 years, oil prices have fluctuated from like 30 to $100 per barrel. This decrease in demand and unexpected increase in supply meant that oil companies ran out of space to store their oil, which led to what is referred to as Black Monday. Yeah, super ominous name. But this is actually the first time in US history that US crude oil prices dipped below zero into the negatives. Despite the fact that oil prices have now returned to historic norms, renewable energy continues to take up more and more of their market share. An interesting point from a paper by Richard Yorka and Shannon Elizabeth Bell called Energy Transitions or Additions? Question mark. Highlights that a transition from fossil fuels requires more than the growth of just renewable energy. York and Bell's paper states that despite the global energy market's share of various energy sources, the introduction of new energy has never actually led to the erasure of old sources. Because capitalist markets are driven by profit and growth, the increase in, say, renewables doesn't actually mean a decrease in non-renewables. It just means more energy. They call this energy additions. And I think it's really important to understand this because maintaining a consumptive lifestyle without understanding how mass consumption feeds climate change stifles the regeneration of the environment. The idea of energy transitions is why some people believe that fossil fuels aren't going anywhere anytime soon. People acknowledge that fossil fuels are a finite resource, but when they will actually run out is a hot topic. The last thing about energy transitions is the idea of a just energy transition. Similar to environmental justice, just energy transitions are an attempt to make a mutually equitable shift in energy markets. I'm of the opinion that oil is detrimental to environmental health. However, I also understand that it's 
cheap form of energy that has become deeply entwined with our lifestyle. Currently, in many parts of the world, high costs of renewable technology and infrastructure would increase the total cost of energy, harming low-income communities and those most at risk. The binary conundrum that arises is either we shift to renewables quickly and risk the livelihoods of marginalized people, or we wait for the renewable energy technology to become cheaper and widely available while the earth burns. It's a grim and simplistic idea, but it's one of the problems that a just energy transition is hoping to solve. The last and most important concept that we'll discuss is tribal sovereignty. Most school kids learn about government in the context of city, county, state, and federal. And of course, tribal governments are not part of that at all. Mr. President, you've been a governor and a president, so you have a unique experience looking at it from two directions. What do you think tribal sovereignty means in the, in the 21st century? And how do we resolve conflicts between tribes and the federal and state governments? Yeah. Uh, tribal sovereignty means that. It's sovereign. You're a, you're a, you've been given sovereignty and you're viewed as a sovereign entity. Yeah. And therefore, the relationship between the federal government and tribes is one between sovereign entities. That was former U.S. President George Bush's attempt to explain indigenous sovereignty during a conference for minority reporters in 2004. We're going to see if we can do a little bit better than his explanation. And I have just the person to walk us through it. A lot of it comes down to ability of indigenous people and groups to self-define and exist without accommodating, without accommodating or being made to accommodate settler systems. Meet Jennings Mergenthal. They're a history and biology double major at McAllister College. They cause problems and occasionally make maps. Like, obviously, it is important to characterize uh, sovereignty as like government to government relationships established through treaties. But I think part of the trouble of tying sovereignty to treaties and land claims is that you're saying in many cases that it's legitimate because within, it's legitimate within the settler context of this treaty. You had the right to the land in the treaty um, because as we all know, colonizers are great with their history of figuring out exactly who lives where and who owns what and would never abuse this for their own benefit. And because of this unique ability of colonizers to be selfless within their negotiations in the Americas, unlike other colonies, America is not marred with bloodshed, but rather a rich history of peaceful agreements over turkey dinners and a long-lasting respect for indigenous... No, that is not how it happened. The story starts long before settlers arrived on the shores of what is now known as America. There is a misconception that Native Americans existed in complete unity prior to the arrival of settler colonists. Yes, they thrived and exercised their way of life, and simultaneously, they fought wars and resolved disputes between themselves. For example, in 1737, a war between the Dakota people and the Ojibwe people won the Ojibwe a large portion of what is now northern Minnesota. This is just one battle in a long-standing rivalry between the two tribes. And settler colonists were experts at exploiting these divisions. Around the 18th century, settlers were trickling in at a more rapid rate, leading to the founding of the USA 
the United States of America on the 4th of July, 1776. To reaffirm their presence on the land, the USA entered into treaty deals with tribes that retained ownership of the land. Treaties can be seen as a grant of rights that native tribes offered the USA under specific conditions. If you're American, treaties can kind of be seen on par, if not above the Constitution. Within the Constitution, treaties are referred to as the supreme law of the land. With regards to Line 3, the 1854, 1855, and 1863 treaties encompass large tracts of land that were ceded to the USA by the Anishinaabe in what is now known as Northern Minnesota. The general role of these treaties was negotiating land rights and ensuring that the Anishinaabe retained the right to hunt, fish, and gather wild rifles, known as manumen. By the 1840s, 1850s, treaty making was operated differently than in the beginning, where in the beginning it was at least ostensibly equitable nation to equitable nation. Since the rise of the term domestic dependent nation, that is how um, the U.S. government viewed indigenous nations in that they weren't foreign governments, they weren't autonomous, they were dependent, uh, therefore, on the United States. So treaty making in this era sort of comes across more as a, we're going to say we want this, and if you say no, we're going to take it. Treaty making in this area is, it's it's too much trouble for us to come in and kill all of you. So we're going to allow you this out of, you can have, you know, your script and your annuities and your 600 pounds of salt pork a year because a scorched earth military expedition would be costly. What Jennings is pointing out in reference to the 1854, 1855, and 1863 treaties is what was so insidious about the treaty process. Treaties highlight a difference in understanding of land rights between indigenous tribes, who saw land as a communal and spiritual resource, and the U.S., who saw and still see land as a commodity, and private property as the basis of civilization. Within northern Minnesota, these treaties led to the establishment of reservation lands, which are tracts of land where indigenous tribes retain their full sovereignty and ability to self-govern. However, the land allowed for these reservations was minuscule in comparison to the original indigenous ownership of the land. Reservations are different from ceded territory in that on ceded territory, the land is basically under the supervision of both the U.S. and tribal nations. Because in the treaties, tribes often made sure that they were able to retain their way of life, their ability to hunt, fish, and gather wild rice. I think part of the use of factory rights was also... Um because they knew that obviously they wouldn't just be left on the reservation there would be government schools and mission schools and if you grant a treaty that allows land use as long as it's being used in particular ways and then start a concerted effort to destroy those particular ways of life you destroy, in addition to the, the culture and community, you destroy their right to use their rights under the, under the treaty. Because of these conditions, the U.S. should not be able to engage in actions that limit the tribe's ability to do so. And building a pipeline through this land 
definitely disrupts the Anishinaabe's ability to exercise their way of life. But back to discussing the reservations. The threat to sort of settler hegemony was the idea of communally held land. One person doesn't own this part of land. It is shared and used and owned collectively by the community. And that is part of what was so insidious about both the creation of reservations and um, allotment, which came later. The understanding that by separating tribes into reservations and further dividing people by allotting them personal plots of land is a universal trick of settler colonists. The gained sense of autonomy allows for an impaired sense of community. And like settler colonists, Enbridge is exploiting this legacy of division by once again putting indigenous nations between a rock and a hard place. It's important to note that there's no universal Native American ideal with regards to Line 3. For example, Enbridge launched its tribal monitoring program, where individuals from tribal communities are hired to be overseers and protectors of cultural heritage. Indigeneity is in the, especially in the American settler consciousness, is authenticity. And if you can tie indigeneity and indigenous support to your your pipeline, it becomes fucking the new crying Indian. Yeah, you can you can utilize this indigenous sign off to say either see you don't speak for all indigenous people or pushing the monolith in the other direction and go see we have indigenous people, which means that all indigenous people are okay for that because if there's one thing Indians are notorious for. It's definitely agreeing with each other. There are a variety of perspectives when it comes to this within the indigenous communities and within the general communities that are engaged with Line 3. There are the few that have a different set of personal ethics and decide to work with the pipelines to ensure that the process is as fair and equitable as they can make it. There are also people in the fight that believe the pipeline will be built, but they're going to make it as difficult and as costly as possible for Enbridge to do so. And finally, there are others that believe that through collective action, the pipeline will be stopped. And I truly hope that they're right. In the, in the Southwest, they were, like US government engineers were trying to figure out, okay, we've disposed of all this radioactive waste. We've locked it in the ground on this DNA land. Um, how do we make something that can last I think they were like, we, we need a sign that can last at least 10,000 years that bad things have happened here. People should not, because it will still be radioactive, that people shouldn't. And part of the partnership with this is they went to the, uh, the nation whose land they, oh, whose land they, they dumped it on. Um, and they were like, what, what do you think is the way that we can make sure that 10,000 years from now, people don't go to this place. And it, it, it might be um, apocryphal, but the, uh, the chair is said to have looked at the government representative and said, don't worry, we'll tell them. So I think in that, in that sense, it's like for indigenous people, the apocalypse has already happened. We are significantly after the apocalypse. And so... We'll wait. If if the pipeline gets built, it'll be a disaster. And then 
in however many years, it'll be will still be around and we'll have to clean it up. As long as indigeneity exists, this is and will always be indigenous land. And that's such a pivotal thing about the fight against Line 3. It's a reiteration that this is still indigenous land and that the treaties were not papers that were signed in the past and exist in the past. They are still relevant, and as Line 3 is showing, treaties continue to impact indigenous people's lives. I guess, to some degree, like an indigenous future is just one where indigenous people still exist. We're gonna keep doing um, our bullshit uh, in, the, in the best way possible. I don't know what the end, end step of indigenous sovereignty is, but I know that the, the, one of the first steps is convincing people that this is the first step. Like making a land acknowledgement is great, I guess, but it doesn't do, there has to be substantive action behind it, or it is just another meaningless platitude. So those are the five concepts that we need to keep in mind. Sustainability, and the idea that it's not always as it seems. Environmental justice, and the notion that organizations can often use environmental justice to make it seem like they're doing the right thing, when really they're not fully living or exercising their own code. Regulatory capture, which explains how there are often larger systems at work, which impact regulatory bodies' ability to carry out their missions. Just energy transitions, which is our attempt to make an equitable shift to renewable energies without disproportionately affecting the lives of minority communities all over the world. And finally, indigenous sovereignty, which ensures we not only question our inherited history, but also simultaneously act to remedy the injustices of the past and the present. I hope this overview has given you some food for thought that you can keep referring back to throughout the podcast. We're going to be getting into more specifics about Line 3 and the permitting process in the next episode. I once again encourage you to do some of your own research. Check out the Line 3 related sites I listed before. That's Honor the Earth, Line3.org, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and Two Spirit, and the GNU Collective on Instagram. You should also check out Dio Kramer's beautifully crafted manifesto called Soap to Cities, Biomimicry as a Tool for Mindful Design. You can find the book and more of her art on her website, diokramer.com. Also, on YouTube, you can watch Jenning Mergenthal's enlightening presentation called Artistic Maps, an unprovoked, aggressive, and most savage war. You can also check out Jenning's recently published collection of maps in their book called An Anti-Colonial History of This Place, an atlas of the land presently called Minnesota. My name is Lee Kwan I'm a geography and geology double major at McAllister College, trying to educate myself and others on how humans rationalize the way we treat the world around us. But for now, this is Permission to Pollute.